You are at the right place at the right time. Welcome to the Discover the Word podcast with Kevin Perney. This is a ministry of discovertheword.net. President Honeycutt wrote me suggesting that I might on Tuesday and Friday preach, that I might on Wednesday and Thursday lecture, and uh, that suits me fine. In fact, I welcome the opportunity to begin my time with you in worship and in preaching as my small contribution to a practice most, most, most important, and that is regular worship during the period of one's theological studies. Neither at the place where I teach nor any other school I've ever visited has there been any willful neglect of worship during seminary education. But I do, once in a while, notice that it gets uh, slighted by some, perhaps under the pressure of what seems to be weightier matters, such as a paper due, (laughs) or... Uh, an exam of major consequence. There is a temporary suspension of worship in the lives of some. But I would like to urge upon you what you already know, that there is no weightier matter than continuing our worship while we study. There is nothing more false, nothing more false than the illusion that talking all day and reading all day about God is an adequate substitute for talking with God. Between the call and the ordination, between the entrance into seminary and the graduation, there sometimes fall the shadow of this terrible neglect. And many fine, promising, bright, and highly gifted ministers enter their first full-time parish experiencing a loss of power because of it. The text for the morning is Luke 16, beginning at verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus who was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and seeing Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. 
But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime received good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou would send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify to them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. I want these four days together to share with you the theme, Luke's understanding of the role of Scripture in the proclamation of the gospel. Those of you who browse around in the dark, obscure corners of libraries may have run across this story, or one very much like it, elsewhere than in the Bible. It is found in the rabbis, about seven different versions. It's found in Egyptian priestly literature. It's found elsewhere in the Near East. Similar stories, different characters, essentially, though the same. It once bothered me to find that this story, or one very like it, was found outside the Bible because I wanted everything in my Bible to be found only in the Bible. That was part of my respect for the Bible, that nothing in it was found anywhere else. And when I found something somewhere else, I was not pleased. I have come to understand, however, that there is a reason for it. Stories like this are found everywhere because the rich man and the beggar are found everywhere, in every culture. The best minds, economic, political, theological, religious, social, have been put to the test to understand and to relieve the world of Lazarus squatting among the dogs on the sidewalk in front of the rich man's house. And after all these centuries, he is still there. He is still there. It is a complex problem. This rich man, this poor man together in the same neighborhood. But at the heart of the story, and all the stories like it, is a simple one. A rich man ate a full meal in full view of a beggar who was starving to death. And the rich man died and went to hell. What's striking about this story in Luke, and in the New Testament only in Luke, is that the story continues. For Jesus, according to Luke, used the story to generate another conversation. A conversation between the rich man and Abraham. First the rich man says, Father Abraham, send Lazarus over here. He's still in charge, he thinks. Send Lazarus over here. To give me some relief, I'm just in terrible torment. Too late, too late, too late, can't cross, too late now. Then, Father Abraham, I have five brothers back on earth, just like I was. Send him back there to tell them, oh, they have the scripture, 
Let them read the scripture. Oh, I know they have Bibles. But if somebody got up out of the grave, they'd change. And Father Abraham said they have the Bible. If they don't believe the Bible, they wouldn't believe it if somebody got up out of the graveyard. And that's the argument. How is faith generated anyway? Now the rich man's point is a familiar one. Of course my brothers have Bibles, have them all over the house. Got them at their wedding, got them when they were in the junior department at church. Have the family Bible, there's one where we keep recipes, we have the genealogy in one. It's on the coffee table when the minister comes. It's in the closet. It's in the, they have Bibles all over the house. What I'm trying to tell you, Father Abraham, is they have all those Bibles and they're still the same. The Bible just doesn't cut it. That's his point. And I understand his point. His point is the Bible, just, just the Bible, isn't doing enough. And after all, the Bible gets used for so many things that many of us do not wish to be associated with it at all. Some strange uses of the Bible. There was a man from the Agriculture Department in Washington with the Dairymen's Association in the re one of the regions of the South. And the dairymen were complaining about the low price of milk. And the fellow from Washington, D.C. said, well, now look, this is a temporary matter. But it all works to your advantage if we can keep the price down low so that marginal dairymen and those that are just starting in the business will have to go out of business. Then it will be left to you and then you can raise the price. It'll work to your advantage. And hands went in the air. And somebody said, those marginal dairymen you're talking about, I go to church with. One of those just getting started is my son-in-law and I don't appreciate what you said. And the man from Washington said, now don't get sentimental, don't get sentimental. You know what the Bible teaches? To them that had more will be given, and from him who has not, even what he has is taken away. <laughs> That's what the Bible says. I was in Birmingham with a church and about 12, 13 couples asked me on a Tuesday evening to come to a prayer and Bible study in one of the homes, and I did. And we didn't really study Bible. In fact, there was not prayer. There was a listing of answers to prayer. Went around the room and people gave their answers to prayer. And there was a fellow at the dining table there with a little computer machine, and he was tallying the answers to prayer. Uh, he told me when they finished, they'd only been meeting, I don't know, five or six months, and they had over 1,200 on the list. As they went around the room, people talking about what they had gotten through prayer, there was a mink stole, there was new luggage, there was a date with somebody named Mike, uh, there was uh, a trip to Hawaii, several other uh, nice things like that. And in the course of the evening, I said, I, I'm a little bothered that these are your prayers in a world anguishing and languishing under oppression and falsehood and poverty and disease and mink stole and rings and trips and dates. And one of those present said, well, Jesus said, whatever you ask, I'll give it to you. 
It's in the book. I heard a minister say at the time of the United States retaliation against Libya, in which one of the children of Gaddafi was killed, this minister said, well, we didn't kill old Gaddafi, but at least we got one of his kids. And I said, well, whatever you may think of the strike and the good that it will do, I don't see how anyone can rejoice over the death of a child, whosever child it is. And he said, well, the Bible says eye for eye and tooth for tooth. It's in the book. I teach the Bible every day, but I have some, I get queasy about it. Even on watching television, when some fellow with several colors of hair has... <laughs> holding up a John 3.16 right at the end zone. It's a tight game. I don't know how you feel about that. I, get, I have mixed feelings about that. Although, although I, am, <laughs> I am painting one for him to hold up when the Atlanta Braves start their season. It is uh, Luke 23.34, which, if, in case you don't recall, it's uh, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're... <laughs> Now, the rich man has a point. The rich man's point is this. Just put the Bible out there and you've got as much misuse as you have use. We need something to bring my brothers around or they're going to be in torment. You can't just invite them or teach them. You have to shock them into believing. We can learn something, says the rich man. We can learn something from our culture. You know how you raise money for a cause? You don't tell people how well the program is going. I know a very, very successful, shall I say, mission in Zaire in Africa where the children are clean and well-fed and they're going to school and the program is going well and the director there said, but I dare not tell that when I come back to the States. Holds up this picture of a child with distended stomach, flies swarming around the sores. You have to do that to get the money, he said. You can't just educate. You can't put it in a book to the young people, don't get on drugs. You have to shock them. That's why they have this team going around now, in Atlanta at least, of people whose lives have been absolutely destroyed by drugs, and they stand up in assemblies in high school and tell that, just nauseating, sickening the truth. One of the people, can I tell you this? One of them puts a handkerchief up the nose, one nostril, and pulls it out the other. Just burn the head off. Now that's the way to get the kids off drugs. You don't say, don't get on drugs. You just burn the face off. <laughs> you don't say to the young people, now don't drive while you're drinking. What you do is you take them down to the police station and show them those twisted automobiles and show them there's large, large photographs of an arm here and a leg there and a head there. That's the way you do it. They tell me that in Texas they're discussing televising executions. Some mother's son will be executed on television. That'll do it. That'll do it. You can't just put a Bible out there. Shock them. And some, some ministers have caught on. 
and do it. <laughs> Last year in Atlanta, there was a church. They tell me they couldn't hold the people. That sometime during the Easter season, they had a midget come and yo-yo, and, and uh, people would call out scripture verses. First Chronicles 3.11, and he would quote it and never miss a yo-yo. <laughs> and just, you can't, you can't just preach and teach the Bible. You've got to bring in somebody who's a beauty queen or nine feet tall or a midget or reenact the ascension or something if you're going to have this. Uh, we had a pastor in my church in West Tennessee years ago that did it. And I, I was only 10, 11, 12 during his ministry. But he sure made a believer out of me. I remember one Sunday on the pulpit there was something with a cloth draped over it. And everything prior to that, the singing and anthem and everything, was really just preliminary. Everybody was staring at that. And time for the sermon came. And he lifted the corners of the cloth. And there was a skeleton. I learned later he got it from the dentist's office. And, and he, would, he would preach his sermon and take a finger and hit the chin of that skeleton and the teeth would click every time he made a point in his sermon. Yeah. And I was sitting there with my mother and saying to myself, I don't, I don't, I don't want to go to hell. I really don't. I remember he described hell. I can almost remember the phrases of the darkness and the bottomless pit and the falling and the screaming and the hellhounds born every minute and the bleached bones that wash up on the shore of the lake of fire. And he said, you know how long that's going to last? You know how long you... Do you have any idea how long you're going to be there? Just imagine, he said, a granite mountain 5,000 feet high. And a dove flies by that mountain once every 500 years and touches the mountain with the tip of his wing. Well, when that dove has worn that mountain down level with the ground, <laughs> that in hell is before breakfast. That's how long it is. <laughs> now, when you're 11 years old, he made the point. The rich man said, send somebody to warn my brothers. Well, they have the scripture. Let them read the Bible. Oh, I know they have the Bible. But they would believe if somebody just got up out of the grave. Oh, no. If the Bible is not sufficient, then nothing is sufficient. That's Father Abraham's point. That the scripture is adequate to generate faith. To read these stories, to meet these characters, to feel the keen edge of the moral teaching of this book, to meet the God who comes to meet you in this book, is to be changed. It is to be changed. Oh, it isn't dramatic, but it is effective nevertheless. Oh, once in a while it's dramatic. A young woman said to me, during her freshman year of college, she said, I was a failure in my classes. I wasn't having any dates. I didn't have as much money as the other students. I was just, I was just so lonely and depressed and homesick and not succeeding. 
One Sunday afternoon, she said, I went to the river near the campus. I had climbed up on the railing, looking into the dark water below. And for some reason or another, I thought of a line, cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. She said, I stepped back, and here I am. I said, where did you learn that line? She said, I don't know. I said, do you go to church? No. Well, when I visited my grandmother in the summers, we went to Sunday school and church. I said, ah. But usually not so dramatic. But live in these pages. I don't mean just use it to get up sermons. I mean live in these pages. And it will cause you to empty your pockets for somebody else's children. It will make you feel the distance between the sky of your intention and the earth of your performance. It will cause you to feel the razor edge of the moral demand of the Christian gospel. It will bring you face to face with God. And I dare say not a person in this room who lives within the pages of this book will ever eat a full meal in the presence of a starving person. Never. Some years ago, some of us who were ministers, pastors, and teachers in seminaries were asked to form a group and before a large body of students and laypersons to say who was the most influential person apart from your parents in the formation of your life and your movement to ministry. And we had two or three weeks' notice, but it was a difficult matter for me. But finally, when my turn came, I stood up and gave them a name they never heard of. I said, Miss Emma Sloan. As children, we called all women Miss down there. Miss Emma Sloan. She was an elderly woman, single. She taught me in the primary department, and since there was nobody to teach us as juniors, she went right on with us, taught us for years. She gave me a Bible. She wrote in the front, May this be a light to your feet, a lamp for your path. Emma Sloan. She taught us to memorize the Bible. She never tried to interpret the Bible. I don't remember her ever explaining anything. She said, Just put it in your heart. Just put it in your heart. And she used the alphabet. And she said, Now learn a verse. And we'd go around the room saying verses. A, a soft answer turns away wrath. B, be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, as Christ, God also in Christ has forgiven you. C, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. D, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. E, every good and perfect gift, and for God so loved the world. Don't worry, I'm not going to go. <laughs> I still remember all that. She didn't explain it. We learn from the King James Bible those verses. And I had to say to those students and church folk that Sunday afternoon, I can't think of anything, anything in all my life that has made such a radical difference as those verses. As the Spirit of God brings one to my mind appropriately, time and time and time, Again. Oh, there are times I would like for something dramatic. 
When I was called into the ministry, I wanted it to be more dramatic. My brothers would say, oh, what, what was it? And sometimes we'd have homecoming and we'd all be there at my mother's and they'd say, uh, tell us about your call again, you know. And I, I just wish God had done it bigger and louder. I just wanted it to really be a whammy, widescreen, technicolor. But I've never known God ever to call anybody into the ministry in a voice loud enough for the whole family to hear. <laughs> I have at times wanted something bigger. It's a, little, it's a little bothersome in a group sometimes to say, well, God heard my prayer and answered my prayer. And you see people looking around saying, you know, uh, he's into that, you know. <laughs> if God would just really do it in an outstanding way so that everybody would say, ooh and ah. If I'd have been running the resurrection, that's the way I would have done it. <laughs> Jesus rose from the dead and then go up down the streets. People say, isn't that Jesus? No, that can't be Jesus. It looks like Jesus. Go back into the Sanhedrin. Hello, fellas. <laughs> go back in front of Pontius Pilate. Would you like to try again, Pontius? <laughs> Could, I could have milked every ounce of power out of that. Just display. But God seems not to do it. I suppose every one of us have at times wished for that bright, high noon, compelling visitation of God. But what I really want, what I really want, and what I believe I need, is for God to continue to come to me in the way described here taking flesh taking form of a servant becoming one calling us brother and sister knowing the pain the suffering even death itself reaching out coming down my street where I live and touching me in grace and in forgiveness and in love more than anything else Uh, when I when I was a, a kid on the farm, my sister and my brothers and I would play hide-and-seek. You can play that in the country, and it doesn't cost anything. And we grew tired of it, but we played it. You remember how it goes. One person is it. And whoever is it hides the eyes, counts to a hundred, and then says, coming, ready or not, and you're supposed to be hidden. And then the person who's it comes looking, and... The first one that's found, run back, touch the base three times and say, you're it. And then that person is it. Quite simple. My sister was it. When my sister was it, she cheated. <laughs> or she started off honestly enough. She would say, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, ninety-three, ninety-four. But I had a place under the porch and under the steps of the porch because of my size. I could get under there and I knew she'd never find me. 9900, here I come, ready or not. And here she came and in the house, out of the house, in the weeds, in the trees, down the corn crib, in the barn. She couldn't find, almost gave myself away down under there just snickering to myself. She'll never find me here. She'll never find me here. And then it occurred to me, she'll never find me here. <laughs> a while, I would stick out a toe. 
And she came by, and she saw my toe, and she said, uh oh, I see, and she'd run back, touch the base three times, and say, aha, you're it, you're it. And I would come out brushing myself off and say, oh, shoot, you found me. You found me. What did I want? What did I really want? The very same thing as you. Isn't that true? Stand for benediction. <clears throat> Dismiss us, O Lord, with a reminder of thy grace and thy love for us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Send us forth to the work of the day with joy and enthusiasm because of the presence of thy Spirit. As we go, undergird us and strengthen us, that we may live this day victoriously in Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. hope you were blessed by today's message and want to thank you for joining us on this Discover the Word journey today. If you have a moment, would you join with others in going to iTunes and leaving a good review for us? Thanks. We also invite you to visit our website, discovertheword.net. Until next time, have a wonderful day and may God richly bless you.